The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Aarons Mee, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. We spent a lot of time at the beginning of the pandemic focusing on healthcare workers, on the toll the pandemic was taking on their physical and mental health, and we publicly appreciated them, rightly so. But as the world has gotten back to quote-unquote normal, the strain on workers in the healthcare system hasn't subsided. Working as a medical professional is difficult in the best of times, balancing expertise with the need to be a caretaker and understand the emotions people are going through, while working in systems that are difficult. That's something that both of today's guests have struggled with, one, a veterinarian, and the other, a doctor named Ariella Marshall, who made a major shift in her career after years of being on a clear path, doing whatever she could to achieve in a traditional sense. That's later in the show. But first, we'll hear from Molly McAllister, the chief medical officer for Mars Veterinary Health. I spoke with her about the unique challenges that vets face, from compassion fatigue to financial burdens to a worker shortage. Do people expect, because you're a vet, that you're very compassionate? (laughs) Yes. And it's an interesting part of the mental health challenge for a lot of veterinarians, but I'll I'll certainly say for me personally, I mean, I'll I'll just give you an example from this weekend. At 6 a.m. on Saturday, I got a text from a number that I didn't know saying, granted, they had the name wrong, but hi, is this Tim the vet? My puppy is vomiting and diarrhea. Can you help? (laughs) It's 6 a.m. Saturday. I don't know who this person is. I'm in bed. You know, how how can I help this person? You know, and then similarly, I had a neighbor reach out. Hey, I need, you know, I need some help with my dogs trimming their nails. Do you mind helping? (laughs) I don't mind helping people, but I often reflect, you know, would you call, if your neighbor was a pediatrician, would you call them and ask them to help you do, you know, X, Y, Z with your child? Or if they were a dentist, Would you ask them to look at your sore tooth? Maybe people would, but I find that there is definitely a different perception for veterinarians and it can create some challenges and it's a beautiful part of the profession as well. Right. It's probably a bit of a double-edged sword. Absolutely. We've spoken to many different professions on the show, doctors, lawyers, accountants, and many professionals are under more strain than ever, it seems, sort of digging out from the pandemic, but also still feeling a lot of burnout. I'm curious, what are things like for you and and your colleagues in the veterinary profession from a broad brush perspective? Yeah, well, I think, you know, interestingly, although there's hypotheses as to why, but, but similar to many healthcare professions, we've experienced much of the same challenge of 
demand for services that has happened in human healthcare. Mm. We weren't sure what was going to happen as the pandemic hit. We got flooded with an intense need for services and care to be provided to pets. It, you know, so many people decided it was a great time to bring a pet into their family, into their home. And we've continued to see a much higher demand than normal, which is starting to flatten off a bit. But you know, it, it's certainly that intensity of not just the demand for our services, but the stressful situations that we were in, in terms of not just masking, but, you know, I'll give you an example. We stopped seeing patients and their pets in an exam room and people would drop their pets off at the front desk yep. and come back for them later. And so it was a very different type of interaction. And so we had to change on the fly. Mm -hmm. That's always stressful. And then particularly, in, you know, in a healthcare situation where the concern for quality and, you know, the potential for things to go wrong. No, no one wants anything to go wrong. And so anytime things change rapidly, there's that concern of, are we going to miss anything? Is this going to increase the risk that there might be an adverse event? You know, thankfully, we didn't see a lot of it, but just that emotional and mental stress was very high. Mm. And then as we've shifted away from the pandemic, what we're finding is, you know, again, I'm sure it's true with a lot of professions, people are reevaluating their life and how they want to approach their work. And so we're seeing that people are looking to work less and veterinarians and veterinary professionals are, are often looking to work less. And that's fantastic as I see people taking care of themselves and their own needs and it creates a challenge in the work environment because we have less people overall to deliver the same or more amount of care. And so we have to think differently about how can we support people? How can we give them the flexibility in their lives? And in our profession, how can we be there for the pets that need us and the families that need us when there's not a safety net for them either? Right. Why do you think people are, or vets in particular, are reevaluating their work habits and, and how much they're working? This profession is a beautiful profession with many wonderful aspects to it. And certainly when you talk to people about being a veterinarian, they'll say, wow, it must be so wonderful. You play with puppies and kittens all day. <laughs> and <laughs> what a, you know, what a wonderful job, probably likening it to, you know, being a kindergarten teacher and how fun to be around all these, you know, young kids all day. And we know that there's a flip side of that coin, which is that there's also a lot of challenges and in a nurturing profession, as I'm you know, sure I don't have to explain, but in a, in a nurturing profession, I think what people find, what many veterinary professionals find is that it strains their emotional resilience to work day in and day out. And that strain leads to burnout and leads to compassion fatigue. Yeah. And unfortunately, the history and the, the system in which we raise veterinarians chooses for people who are perfectionists, who are achievers, who aim high and don't deliver less than their very best. And when you put that in the context of this profession that requires a lot of compassion, that requires you to not just deliver a product that you have control over, but to take care of a pet in the context of their family, that is a, a perfect storm for emotional challenges. And I think what a lot of veterinary professionals find, I'll say it was true for myself, and I, I talk to so many you know, on a daily basis, I can say that what a lot of us find is that we want to be able to give of ourselves. We've chose this profession in most cases at a very young age, and it's maybe all we've ever seen ourselves doing. So we want to be able to do that, but we can't do it five days a week. We certainly can't do it seven days a week. And for many people doing it, you know, two days a week is just right. 
What are the financial realities for most vets? Because I would imagine veterinary school, many people have loans just like in med school, you yes. know, and, and what is the what is the financial promise for most small animal vets? Yeah, the environment has shifted quite a bit recently. But the reality is, as you mentioned, if you liken it to human health care, the entrance into veterinary school requires much of the same training or, or education that entrance into medical school does. So it's generally a four-year degree. Many people will go on to get master's before they, they go to veterinary school. Veterinary school costs the same as medical school. Mm. So the average student debt at graduation is around $200,000. And then going into a profession where the income is not what you find in human healthcare or in dentistry or in some of the other similar healthcare professionals. So the debt to income ratio for veterinarians is much worse than it is for most healthcare professionals. That has improved a bit over time, particularly through the pandemic, as salaries have risen with the demand for veterinary professionals. But it's still, you know, for a veterinarian entering practice to make Six figures is common, but it's low six figures. And they're graduating with, you know, as I say, on average, about one hundred and eighty to two hundred thousand dollars worth of debt. And then I think what's really important to note is that the huge range and the disparity. So there are about 20% of veterinarians who graduate with no student debt, which is great. You know, they've got family loans or they've been able to pay their way along the way. But there's also veterinarians who are graduating with worth of debt. Mm. And what we see, unfortunately, is that that's a lot of our underrepresented groups. That's a lot of our underrepresented minorities who it's critically important that we bring them into the profession. And to see that they face such a great financial burden is really, I don't want to say disheartening, but it's something that we absolutely have to tackle because that plays a role in people's health and well-being every day when that weight of finances is on their shoulder. Oh, we know that. We know that, you know, money worries and economic worries are one of the key drivers of mental health and of anxiety in this country. I want to go back to the perfectionism piece. Do you have your own relationship with perfectionism? Like, how does it, how oh. does, what's your story? <laughs> <laughs> oh, certainly I do. I'll say my quick backstory is I certainly grew up as somewhat of a perfectionist, a people pleaser. In my family, I had an older sister who passed away when I was 12. She was mm. 24. And I realized through years of therapy that I spent a lot of my life trying to achieve a, a bit of a myth of, you know, who my sister was and what she would have become. So for me, you know, it's always been sort of chasing to be something that, if I'm honest with myself, isn't a reality and isn't who I am. So so that's a piece of it for me. And and then I'll say I certainly was always in animal loving kid. As I went through the struggles and trials and tribulations of childhood, my pets were always my companion, my source of of grounding and, you know, sense of belonging. And so I felt this extreme devotion to taking care of animals since I was little. And so when you put those two together in this profession, I would say, you know, I'm I'm probably again that that perfect storm that I mentioned of what I would say is certainly a perfectionist combined with someone who struggles or or is at risk for compassion fatigue. I know Brene Brown talks about, I think she she calls it passionate perfectionists. And when I think about veterinarians, I like to shift it a little bit and say that we're compassionate perfectionists, (laughs) which I think is almost worse because we're trying to be perfect in a scenario where we're trying to take care of a medical situation that we often have little control over and a family situation where the family's 
values and priorities may be completely different from our own. And so it's, it's really a challenge and it's something that I have faced time and time again. That's so interesting because, you know, at the center of all of your work and probably a lot of the emotion is a creature who is good. It's not messy like humans, right? right. There's there's right. no animal that you would probably work with or work on who is hateful or cruel or right. any of the things that people can be. And so you're always trying to save someone good. Yes, yes. I was just having this conversation with an Uber driver recently where, you know, saying he was saying, gosh, the worst thing about your job must be putting animals to sleep. And I said, well, that is a challenge that can be really hard, particularly if you've known that pet their whole life or you've known that family for a long time or struggled through a challenging illness. But I said, I think actually the hardest part for so many of us in this profession is the range of potential medical interventions and the range of sentiments that people have about their pets. You, as a pet owner, I'm sure you can appreciate, you know, you can do nearly anything for a pet medically that you can do for a human. You can do kidney transplants in cats who suffer from kidney disease. You can do, you know, intense neurological surgery, brain tumor removals. You know, there, there are so many things that we can do for pets medically. And for some people, that pet is such an important part of their family that they will take out a second mortgage. They will pawn their, you know, their most valuable possessions to take care of their pets. And for other people, it's a different scenario. And so a veterinary professional, because it's not just the veterinarians, our technicians do this a lot as well. You have to be able to have that conversation compassionately with people across such a broad range of perspectives. And that is incredibly challenging. When did the lens of mental health start being a piece of what you really wanted to advocate for and work on? I would say mental health kind of raised its head for me at a few really important moments. The first was my first year of my career where, like in human medicine, I did an internship. So veterinarians can graduate from school and go straight into practice, but many choose to do an internship or a residency and and become a specialist. So I chose to do an internship. This was a while ago. And so the environment was a bit more like you would consider stories of healthcare in the past, you know, spending days being on call, pulling an overnight and then working the next day and through the next night. And I worked for a very great clinic where they had a lot of respect and and compassion for who I was and you know the role I played as an intern but yet there was still this expectation of you know who's going to be on call every night it's going to be Molly and who's <laughs> going to be the one on the weekends it's going to be Molly and so I want to emphasize, I felt very supported by my mentors by my my boss in that scenario but I also realized that I had to consciously, intentionally carve out the time to take care of myself because otherwise I would have just worked from dawn to dusk. And I quickly saw within a few months that that wasn't going to be the right choice for me. So that was kind of the first time. And then I'll say it was really a few years into practice where I had a couple of instances and actually one in particular really stands out for me. I was working at a veterinary hospital where they made a decision to change from having 30 minute appointment times to 15 minute appointment times. Mm. Perfectly normal. I mean, it's a normal thing to have happen, you know, in healthcare. A lot of it is around, we have people who need to get through the door. How do we get them through the door? Yeah. 
They instituted that change, however, without much conversation with the doctors in terms of how we were going to make that happen. I was new to the clinic. I had switched from practicing on horses to small animals. And so I would say, you know, it still felt like I was a newbie in that scenario. And so they made this change and I wasn't equipped with the the tools and resources to be able to just suddenly shift to a 15 minute appointment. And so after about a week of that, the practice manager pulled me aside and she said, you know, Molly, we have some concerns. You're not keeping up with your appointment time. And the staff feels like you're just doing this because you don't like the change to 15 minute appointments. And I was devastated. I mean, I still to this day can feel the sense of shame and embarrassment that that conversation brought up with me because no one had ever in my entire life had ever you know, accused me. She wasn't accusing me, but she was, you know, she sort of was, she was, you know, accused me of not working hard, particularly when it came to something I cared so much about. And I really struggled, you know, eventually I figured it out. But what I realized in that moment was that things have to change. We have to run a business, you know, and this is about taking care of the pets. And if we don't support our people and bring them along in any change we need to make in the evolution of the profession, just in the day-to-day work, if we don't support the people, we aren't going to be able to take care of the pets effectively. Mm -hmm. And sometimes supporting the people isn't clear and straightforward. You know, in that scenario, I didn't know to ask for help. I didn't know to say, time out. How are we going to do 30 minutes (laughs) to 15 minutes? Like who's going to help me do what? You know, how how are we going to be more efficient? And I learned a lot from that time. And fast forward, how has this played out for me as my career has gone into this place of leading, you know, now 70,000 veterinary professionals across 3,000 veterinary hospitals, I really think intentionally about the changes that we might be trying to insert into our system, into our hospitals, into our environment to think, okay, but what is this going to feel like tomorrow in this veterinary hospital? What is this going to feel like for a veterinarian or a veterinary technician who walks into work and, you know, on Monday, everything's different than it was on Friday? And how do we minimize that sense of change, but also make sure that, yes, tools and resources are there to support them, but also that we're open to having conversations. Mm -hmm. Of course, people don't like change. We know that to be true of human nature. And so how do we make sure that when change is inevitable, that we have a moment to talk about what are the struggles? What are the positives of this change? What are the negatives of this change? What are the struggles we're having and how can we help people through them? So it's, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll say in a bizarre way, I'm thankful for some of my own struggles along the way because it's really now helped me step into this role and think, first and foremost, we have to take care of our people if we're going to do this job of delivering care to 35 million pets a year, which is what we end up doing across our hospitals. How has your own mental health and taking care of your own mental health, your attitude about that shifted as you've gained more responsibility as a leader? Like, I'm always curious about leaders who really think about this stuff. How do you integrate your own mental health into your leadership? Very intentionally. (laughs) If I reflect back to my early career, I was definitely a, a work hard, play hard type of person. But I also suffered from this sense of perfectionism and so or this need for perfectionism I should say and I didn't want anyone to second guess my commitment my capability my investment in my profession and 
that was manageable mm. for a few years. And then I, I started to feel the emotional burnout underneath it for not being my whole self when I was at work for sort of putting on the blinders and saying, you know, here I am to work and I'm going to work hard and I'm going to be here till I'm done. And I'm going to forget about my personal life until this day at the clinic is done. So I had a couple really hard realizations along the way. I mean, you know, walking through the door after a day of work and just sort of crumpling to the ground, <laughs> hugging my dog, you know, saying, how do I keep doing this with, you know, it wasn't just working hard. It was the, the challenges of the, you know, the finances and some of the difficult client interactions and things like that, but not feeling like I was presenting as my whole self. As I've moved through my career, I think importantly, as I started taking leadership roles and realizing the responsibility that I had in role modeling for other people, and then I'll say, frankly, just, you know, not that people who aren't parents can't do it, but as I had my own kids, it, it became this stark reality of, wow, if I'm going to be there for them as a parent, I've really got to lean into this. And if I want others around me who are trying to embrace their whole life, be it a family life or a single life, I've got to be a role model for them. And so I'd say in the last five years or so, again, particularly because of trauma in my life, I've really gotten clear about what my boundaries are, how I take care of myself. And then I would say most importantly for me, normalizing it and communicating about it. It's been about a year and a half. I got divorced. I've got a six-year-old and a nine-year-old. Mm. And I'm in a global job. I travel a lot. I have my kids 50% of the time. And they are my number one priority. I love my job dearly. I, I love what I get to do. And I do this right now for my kids. And so you'll find my out-of-office will tell you if I'm on a long weekend away with my kids. I'm taking a long weekend with my family and I won't be responding to emails because I need this time with my children. You know, I, I will go and say those types of things in my work communications. And when I'm, you know, active on social media or, or when I'm talking to my own team, I'm just very clear about what I need as a person, as well as what I'm doing as a professional. And I think that that normalization and role modeling is something that I've become more and more acutely aware of the importance as I've navigated the years of my career. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. There's a lot of interest, and I think rightly so, in trauma-informed leadership. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if you consider yourself to be a trauma-informed leader, you know, how your own narrative, which it sounds like you've integrated, 
of your life and trauma and and anxiety and pressures has changed how you manage people. It absolutely has. And I shared with you, you know, a story of trauma early in my life of losing my older sister. And I've dealt with other family losses along the way. I will often jokingly say I learned best by trauma and I I probably shouldn't joke about it. But what does that mean? Well, well, I think what it means, and maybe it probably sounds a little bit too masochistic the way that I say it, but I think what it means is that through every trauma that I've experienced, I've gained some really important learnings. And I have not heard the term trauma-informed leadership, but I like that. I think that's a better way of phrasing what I feel, which is that sometimes going through a hard time gives you some amazing gifts. And finding those gifts for yourself is one thing. And finding those gifts and being able to share them with a broader group of people is a whole other gift. Well, and and I think the idea behind trauma-informed leadership, which got its nod really, I think, from education, right, is the idea that leaders need to know what trauma looks like in people right? They need to be sensitive and skilled and able to handle people who've been through trauma, because of course that's going to happen. And I think certainly as we navigate our ever more complex and volatile world, we see more and more of that. And as I will say a a space I've been really passionate about, I'll go back to the concept of underrepresented groups in veterinary medicine, And recognizing that the trauma in someone's lived experience is so real and and has such an influence on their life choices. And it doesn't necessarily show up day to day in how they present themselves or, or the conversations that you have casually, but it's there. And I think the idea of recognizing that lives are complicated, people face trauma all the time and being respectful of the need people have to show up as themselves, to show up authentically and what they're able to give that day is so important. You know, not meaning that people can show up and be a jerk every day because they've been going through a hard time, but just to be respectful that we all navigate our own stories, our own journeys, and there are highs and lows. And leading people through those highs and lows is so important if we want to have sustainable, thriving workplaces. And in the profession I'm in, I don't see any other choice. (laughs) People can't nurture and care if they're not in a place where they feel like they belong. How do you embody this in your own? I would imagine you have direct reports who then have direct reports who then have direct reports who then have direct Mm -hmm. reports given the number (laughs) of people under your purview. Can you talk about any practices that you think work for that sort of mentally healthy leadership, you know, understanding that maybe there are some days where we're not going to be at our best and that life is hard and people get burnt out and and that you give your best, but you still take care of yourself? Yeah. So as you ask that question, I think I see two sides of it. One is how each of us actually leads, and then the other is how we take care of ourselves as a leader. And, and maybe they all, all kind of merge into the same thing. But I think first and foremost, as a leader, one of the most valuable pieces of experience or knowledge I've gained and that I am probably most intentional about is to be curious, to remove the stories and, and to listen carefully. 
Remove what stories? Remove any stories that you might jump to in your mind about what's happening in a particular scenario. So it's so easy to walk in and say, you know, an example in my world, Dr. Smith was so rude to that client. Dr. Smith can be so difficult to work with. You know, I don't know if this is the right hospital for Dr. Smith. You know, we're going to have to talk to him about his interactions as opposed to saying, Dr. Smith just had a really difficult interaction with that client. I wonder what's going on. I wonder what happened before that interaction took place, or I wonder if there's something going on that he or she could use some support rather than assuming what you know what's going on to ask the questions and to seek to understand. Mm. And maybe the first part is removing the story. The second part is being curious. And then the, the third is to really listen and, and listen deeply And I think the listening deeply is an important one as well, where probably one of the most valuable tools for myself that I started when I first became a chief medical officer. So my prior role where I had about 3000 doctors overall kind of rolling up to me through through the line management structure. And I started doing doctor town halls where this was during the pandemic. We would just have an open call, video call. People didn't have to turn on their video, but to share some information from my side, but also just to listen. What were the questions people had? What were the concerns people had? And when people would type in the chat anonymously, that's when you knew you knew something <laughs> Always, <hard> was, yep. <laughs> was coming at you. But what I took really seriously was that opportunity to just lay down my defenses and to listen wholeheartedly and to recognize that if somebody was upset enough about something to bring it to a chat like that, to bring it to that kind of setting and and even type it into the chat anonymously, that it was important. And I couldn't solve all of them. And, you know, sometimes did things seem petty or small? Maybe. But the reality is those were things that were weighing on people every day. And to hear that, to be open to it, to welcome their challenges, their concerns was hard at times, particularly in the pandemic where everybody was in fight or flight for so much of the time. You know, it would have been easier to just censor that or to have it be a, you know, I'll talk at you and I'll take questions, you know, by email after the fact. But I I found that to be really important. And even just without having answers, just listening to what was on people's minds at scale was such an important part of them thinking through what did I need to do differently? What did we need to do differently? How could I be a better leader for what my people were needing in that time? My last question for you, you know, I'm thinking about passionate perfectionism, compassionate perfectionism. You mentioned being so upset at the idea that someone might think you weren't working hard, right? And, you know, those of us who are driven by passion and compassion sometimes have a hard time balancing the harsh reality of business, <laughs> of yeah. charging people, right? I always, I really struggled with this when I ran my own social impact business where I would work for not-for-profits and I would think, oh my God, you know, I sh- shouldn't be charging them. I should be donating, all this stuff, you know. How did you learn as a leader to get tougher, but also keep that piece of yourself that is so clearly valuable to you? Yeah. So one of the things that I view as so powerful in my job is translating between professionals who are here to 
fulfill a purpose, a passion that has sat with them since they were four or five years old, which is to take care of pets and to translate that passion to a world of business people who haven't experienced that same sort of career purpose necessarily. And to translate between those two groups, because at the end of the day, a good business needs good business practices to be able to sustain and to thrive on. And in this profession that I'm in, great medicine is actually what drives great business. I have a benefit of working for a company that is family owned and looks into the future for generations, not just for years. But I also have the benefit of seeing what pets do for people. And what I love, what I feel so fortunate about is that we can look around and see that people agree pets make the world a better place for them. You know, the smile <laughs> that, that a pet puts on someone's face, the companionship that they can give to a lonely child, or so importantly today, a lonely senior mm -hmm. who may be homebound. People understand that value. And so in this business, it's not about two conflicting needs of making money or taking care of pets. It's really about integrating it all together to understand that when we take care of pets well, we create a good business model. In that business model, we do need people to pay for care so that we can invest back and we can take care of more pets and we can support people across a spectrum of financial needs and across a spectrum of desires for what they want for their pet. But to cut it down to the chase, you know, it, it's really about the fact that in a purpose-driven business, which I get to be in, what we do every day is to take great care of pets. That has value for people. And therefore, that has value to a business. And so it has to, to be a virtuous cycle where the business has to take care of the people and take care of their ability to take care of pets so that we can continue to do well financially and invest back into that virtuous cycle. Next, you'll hear my chat with Dr. Ariella Marshall. We spoke just as she was starting a new job working part-time, one week a month, an hour and a half away from her home as a consultant. She went to Harvard Medical School and previously worked at Penn Medicine and the Mayo Clinic. And Dr. Marshall was kind of your standard anxious achiever for a long time. She started out trying to do all the right things, as she says, to do what a, quote, successful physician is supposed to do, including working 80 or so hour weeks. But she's experienced anxiety a struggle with fertility, and a journey that brought her to where she is now, trying to find a better fit for her life. Here's our conversation. It's interesting to me in medicine, I was, I do a lot of work with law firms and lawyers as well. And I, you know, there are worlds where there's a certain hierarchy and ladder to, quote, success that feels well-trodden, right? It's not like being an entrepreneur where you're like, well, I don't know. You know, you go to a top medical school, it feels like, okay, I've got a path. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what makes it so difficult because you spend years of your life on this path that has been defined for you, both in terms of what you have to do and what it looks like to be successful. And you don't get any training in how to think about things kind of in your own way and make your own definition of success. And I think a lot of people like myself kind of balk 
at the end of the road when you're told, okay, you're fully trained, now go out into the world and do your thing. And that can be incredibly scary mm. and really lead to a lot of, I think, self-reflection. And for some people like myself, a lot of anxiety about how do I continue to be excellent? How do I, you know, pursue a path where I don't know what my next step is when someone has told me exactly what I need to do for the last, you know, more than 10 years of my life. So did you first feel the anxiety when you were younger or did you only recently feel it as you bumped up against some sort of challenges as you got more advanced? Yeah, I think I always felt some anxiety, but it's a different type of anxiety. It was the more classical type of anxiety that somebody has about how do they perform well, like many of us do as doctors. So you have to perform well in high school to get into a good college. You have to perform well in college to get into any medical school. You have to perform well in medical school to match into a good residency. You have to perform well in residency to get into a good fellowship. And then is when you, you know, you take on the job. But all of that performance, you know, it's kind of the quote unquote typical anxiety of am I doing this right? Am I getting the A? Am I, you know, doing well in my rotations? Do my preceptors think I'm doing a good job? Are they giving me good evaluation? So there's mm. that type of anxiety, which I, I think is pretty universal for anybody who's in any type of training, whether it be school or kind of the apprenticeship model we have in, in medicine. And and that's a normal anxiety, I would say. Right. Well, it's one you sign up for. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Normal being expected. Mm -hmm. I think everybody has it to some extent when they're in their school and in their training. But I think the anxiety that I developed kind of nearing the end of my training of, oh my gosh, what am I going to quote unquote do with my life? Now, that's more the existential anxiety mm -hmm. of, oh my God, you know, I've been trained, but I've been given this model of what success looks like, and I've been told that now I have everything that I need to go out into the world and be successful, but I'm not sure if that actually is going to make me happy. And that conflict between, you know, the model we've all been given of what the good academic successful physician looks like and what's actually going to make one happy, that's the existential anxiety that I'm talking about and that I feel, you know, even now 10 years into my career. I was just reading, I've never read the book Designing Your Life, which is a classic and I, I should have read it. And it opens with a story of a woman who really loved rocks growing up. She just thought rocks were the coolest. And so when she got to college, you know, she was smart. She became a geology major and, you know, did well. And then graduated, moved back in with her parents and was being a dog walker. And her parents were like, but you're our daughter, the geologist. <laughs> and she was like, well, I really love rocks, but being a geologist really doesn't have much to do with that. <laughs> 100%. I have not read that book either, but it rings true to so much of what we do in medicine. You know, we're always told pick a specialty based on what you find interesting. So if you find, you know, Technical things like cutting, interesting, become a surgeon. If you find, you know, women's health interesting, become an OBGYN. But what nobody talks about is it's not what you find interesting kind of intellectually. It's what is the practice in that specialty actually look like? And does that meet what is going to be fulfilling to you in your life as a physician? It's not necessarily, you know, just the book learning behind it is what is the life of someone who is an ex-specialist look like? And that's something no one 
talks about when we're going through our training and, and being told to pick a specialty, just like, oh, what do you find interesting? But the actual day-to-day practice is not, you know, talking about necessarily those interesting things. So just like talking about rocks is not what a geologist does, you know, the things that we find interesting kind of from the materials perspective, you know, when we're reading or doing our rotations as a medical student and not necessarily have anything to do with what the life of someone who goes into that specialty actually looks like. Well, let's dive in on that. Talk us through your own experience of the actual showing up on Monday morning feeling versus the sort of abstract, when I get my diploma, I'm going to do this feeling. Like, was there a disconnect for you and how did that play out? Yes, yes. My path has been very windy, I would say. <laughs> uh, you know, there's some people who say, oh, yeah, and from when I was age three, I had a stethoscope in my toolkit and knew I wanted to be a doctor. And that was absolutely not me. I went through many, many phases. I wanted to be a vet. I wanted to be a chef. I wanted to be an architect <laughs> and interior design, you know, all these things. And it wasn't a situation where I kind of knew what I was getting myself into. Mm. I went to college and I actually thought I was going to be an economics major. Mm. And I sat in this classroom with hundreds of other people and I realized, oh my gosh, I am not interested in this and I'm not very good at it. So let's go back to the drawing board. And I happened to be taking a biology course. I said, oh, you know, I've always liked the sciences. Why am I not doing this? So intellectually, it was interesting and I did well. And so there was all that kind of positive feedback of, oh, you're getting A's in these classes. You must be good at it. And I shadowed in labs and I shadowed physicians. And I said, based on kind of what I see them doing, you know, for this is for like two days, you know, not <laughs> not any meaningful stretch of time, but based on what they're doing and based on what they tell me about their career paths, you know, it seems like medicine is a much more stable career path that seems like it goes better with my interests because I'm not sure if I want to be in a lab the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. So I'll do medicine. But again, it was a very poorly informed choice, I would say, because I didn't have any real meaningful exposure to what it meant to be a doctor, you know, as opposed to what it meant to choose a pre-med as a thing to do mm. for somebody who has always just wanted to be the most successful possible. So then there was this stretch of, okay, I've decided I want to be a doctor. You know, I'll shadow some people. I'll apply to medical school. And that went well. Got into medical school and, you know, worked on some projects as med students do. Um, and I said, okay, you know, I had a really good shadowing experience and really good project experience in oncology. So I think I'm going to do that. Mm. And that's kind of like predefining a course for six years. But in a way, it actually was calming. It was soothing to know, okay, if I just keep what I'm doing, doing my good job, keeping my head down, publishing the papers, doing well in my rotations, I know exactly what I'm going to be doing for the next six years. And that's soothing in a way. And so that's what I did. I said, okay, I'm going to get into the best internal medicine residency program I can. I'm going to get into the best fellowship program I can. And that's what I did based on the interactions I was having. But what I really did enjoy was being in the hospital, being in kind of the thick of things with patients who are really sick and kind of need 
quick but very important decisions made about their care. Hmm. And that's when I did a hematology rotation and we were talking about management of big blood clots and management of life-threatening bleeding. And I said, wow, this is really interesting and exciting. I really like this. And so I said, I'm going to do hematology. And then I get to the end of my training and it's okay. Actually, the job market is really good in classical hematology because not many people want to go into it. It's the least lucrative of, oh. of all the fields oh. in, in Hemonc. And I, I had some choices, you know, and ultimately, you know, another whole story of it, it's a joint decision because my husband's also a physician. So we needed to ah. go somewhere where there were good jobs for both of us. But I think, you know, at that point, I was in my early 30s, so over 10 years of schooling, and you finally get to that job and you're kind of like, whoa, is this what it's going to be like for the rest of my life? Whoa. You know, I don't know if I really like this. <laughs> Let's pause on that. So what could be different? Like, would it have been better if you had taken a couple of years off and actually worked in a hospital? What could have made you prepared for the shock of what the real work world is like versus being in such a an apprenticeship and school model? You know, some of that comes back to what is the perception of the field that you're going into in the first place? Mm. As I mentioned, I don't have any doctors in my family. So there's no doctor speak around the dinner table. There's no discussion of that. The only experience I had was going to my own doctor and in the type of family and the type of personalities I come from, basically going to the doctor was you briefly told them if something was wrong. They told you, here's what I think is going on and here's what you should do about it. And you said, okay, sure. <sighs> and so that was kind of my perception. And that's the type of personality that I have. And that's why I thought it would be a good fit for me as a field. I thought that somebody would come in and say, hey, you know, my toe hurts. And I would say, oh, that, you know, maybe because of X, Y, and Z, here's what I recommend. They say, okay, thank you. And they go and their toe feels better. So I've used my knowledge to help someone and they're happy with that and I'm happy with that. And that's just such a naive, like, this is going to sound funny, but in my kind of low emotion state, I didn't realize that people actually wanted to talk about what's going on with them because I don't want to. You know, the same way if I go to the hardware store and get a screwdriver, I'm not going to go talk to the people behind you know, the counter about mm -hmm. anything else. I'm just going to get, you know, what is the reason to be there? And so that's my type of black and white thinking. And I didn't realize that that is not how medicine is practice in the real world. You mentioned the word low emotion state. Is that a state that you're frequently? What does that mean? Yeah, I'm just not a very emotional person. You know, of course, there's times I get upset, but I'm very pragmatic about things. And it makes me uncomfortable to talk about emotions, whether it be my own or someone else's. And that's something I've been reflecting on a lot recently as why, you know, this may not have been the best type of profession for me. You know, again, my view was this very pragmatic medicine is fixing things that are wrong and making people feel better that way. My view was not people want to talk and tell you about things going on in their life and that's how you're going to help them feel better. That's really interesting. So when did anxiety start to show up for you in a way that was really getting in the middle of your life? Yeah, you know, as I mentioned, I've, I've always been an 
anxious person, quote unquote, but I've been able to channel the anxiety in a way that many people do kind Mm -hmm. of to become successful professionals. So when I was in middle school, I wanted to speak at our graduation and they chose somebody else to speak at the graduation. And I said, oh my gosh, this is not going to happen to me again. What do I need to do to speak at my high school graduation? I need to be the valedictorian. Okay, I'm going to become the valedictorian. And so everything after that in my life was dedicated to becoming valedictorian. But it was just this tremendous anxiety of not being number one Mm. and not kind of keeping up the performance. But I was able to channel it in a way that got all of that positive feedback. Oh, my gosh, you know. All A pluses, you know, 4.0 GPA, great on the SAT. So that anxiety that was driving me to wake up at 4 a.m. to study, I think in those areas where it's defined for you, doing well is getting the A, or in college, doing well is getting the A, even in medical school and residency, doing well is X, Y, and Z, the anxiety can be channeled because you know what you're supposed to do with it. But when you're out in the real world and don't know how to channel the anxiety to be successful or feel that it needs to be channeled in a way that you just can't channel it, like no matter how hard I channel, I'm never going to be able to be, you know, the kind sympathetic listener, you know, that people want. And some people say that is what a good doctor is. I can make good medical decisions. I can definitely, you know, help people make good medical decisions in times when there is, you know, an acute need. And that's why I'm good in the hospital. And that's why I'm so glad I'm able to work now in a hospital-only setting because this is the type of decisions that need to be made. So I can, you know, essentially use my skills in a way that will help people but not require me to kind of channel in a way that I can't. Hmm. Fast forward. You are mid-career. You're working. Do you have kids? Was that a piece of your plan? I do have one child. He's a son. And when we decided that that we did want to have a child, you know, I actually had a whole separate, you know, battle with infertility. And I'm one of the lucky ones who actually the IVF treatments worked. And when I say lucky, you know, I'm talking about years of injections and lab checks and ultrasounds and procedures and money and emotional distress. But I am lucky because we were able to have our son. So he's almost three. I love him very, very, very much, of course, but also a big contributor to anxiety because now it's not only, hey, you know, I need to do good in my jobs. I need to do good as a mom. And I still feel that pressure, those urges of how does society define, you know, not only now what is a good doctor like, but how does society define what is a good mom look like? And how am I going to channel that anxiety and get the A? And that's impossible when you have a child. It's impossible because their outcome has nothing to do, you know, with what you put in, but nobody wants to admit that, you know. <laughs> But that is obviously very anxiety-provoking, too, and the stress of going, you know, away essentially for one week a month when I have a three-year-old home, you know, not only for me, but also how is the world going to look at that? You know, are they going to think I'm a bad mom for taking a job where I need to be away a week a month? You know, so that was a huge. Why do you care? What does that say to you that someone might 
think you're a bad mom for going away oh. for a week. <laughs> and the why do you care is the root of so much of our anxiety. I think if we could turn off <laughs> oh that voice, God. you know, the, that's so much of the anxiety of taking a part-time job instead of a full-time job. I wrote about that, you know, how we hear the sirens calling us of here's what it looks like to do well, you know, come work full-time, use all of the extra time, you know, in the mornings, in the evenings to do more work, that call of the sirens to become the picture of what people think is successful is very strong. It's a very strong call. And so, if we can get rid of that voice of what do other people think, that would be amazing. I wish there was an on and off switch. I think that would help so much with everybody's anxiety. What's helping you? Because you've made some radical changes. I mean, right in the middle of all of this, you're dealing with infertility, dealing with growing your career. You made a shift. Like, when did you take a moment and think, you know what, my mental health might be worth more than caring about what other people think? Yes, it is. I, I will be completely upfront. It was something I was actually forced into, but mm. I'm so glad it's worked out this way. So long backstory that I will summarize briefly into. We were in Minnesota going through all the battles with infertility. My husband and I are both from the East Coast. And so when our son was finally born, we're in the midst of COVID. I had a lot of medical complications, postpartum, was hospitalized. Mm. And we just we really felt it. We said, we are out in the middle of nowhere and we need some help from our families. And so we moved back east to Philadelphia. And I was fairly happy, actually, uh, with the clinical job that I had. My husband took a non-clinical job and after a couple of years realized he truly did miss medicine. And so we looked into coming back to Minnesota because there was a great position available for him. Mm. And I actually applied for a job in a different department, but the same hospital. And I went through the whole interview process and I got a call and I was told, you know, we think that clinically you're fantastic, but, you know, one person who had worked with you in the past felt that your personality was a bit abrasive. That was the word that was used. And so we're essentially not going to offer you this job. Wow. And I just, I didn't even know how to react because this had been kind of my plan. My life was kind of uprooted because... The hospital where we work, there's really no other game in town. And so hearing that I didn't get a job essentially meant that I didn't have any options. I just broke down and I called my best friend, who is actually a therapist, handy to have, I have Very to say. Very handy. But she is also what one could call abrasive. We, we like this part about our personalities together. And she said, Can I just press pause? Is abrasive one of those words that people get hit with, especially like women? I mean, what, is abrasive? A tricky word. Absolutely. And on my other hat, I am a huge women's rights and gender equity advocate. And I would absolutely say, you know, there's no way to prove this, but I would say that my behavior may be considered or anybody's behavior may be considered abrasive for a woman, but simply strong and powerful for mm. a man. So if you speak your mind, if you don't admit that you are afraid to make a decision, that you are definitive about something and don't hem and haw, and you don't do all the small talk, that's abrasive often for a woman. Right. Okay. So keep going. So you called your best friend. <laughs> <laughs> so I called her and she said, 
why are you crying? This is the best thing that could have possibly happened to you. And I said, what are you talking about? And she's like, you haven't liked what you're doing for years and you've been afraid to step away from it. Now someone's closed the door in your face and you're going to have to find out what you're doing with your life and open a different door for yourself. So Mm. why are you crying? This is the best possible thing that could have happened to you. I mean, in the minute, I was like, uh, I don't think so. But, you know, a, a couple of, of days later and a couple of slices of cake yeah, later, I, I said, you know, okay, maybe it's not the best thing that's happened to me, but I got to figure something out. Yeah, and that's when I started reaching out. And I, I was super lucky because I essentially told the hospital system that I'm working for now, hey, you're an hour and a half away. I need something where I can come up and do a block of time all at once. Mm -hmm. Can you take me part-time, you know, doing just inpatient consults, which has essentially always been my dream job. And they said yes. And I was surprised. And I'm just so thrilled that it worked out the way that it did. But it was definitely not any part of a plan. It has allowed me to open up my world and say, I'm going to use my other time to do all of these quote-unquote passion projects. And I also have to say I am in a very privileged and very lucky position because my husband is working full-time clinically and so financially we don't need me to be working full-time clinically as well. But I do acknowledge that there's a tremendous amount of privilege. Mm -hmm. It's not just luck or everything is good, you know, best decision of my life. It requires a tremendous amount of privilege to be in a situation where I can do that. What critical questions do you wish you had asked yourself along the way that would have saved you maybe so much pain and anxiety? Yeah, I think it's it's me. It's also systemic. I think our medical systems are really set up, number one, to recruit people who have perfectionistic, anxious tendencies <laughs> because guess what? Don't you want your doctors to be up until 3 a.m. answering all of their inbox messages and you know questions from patients and anxious people like myself that need to clear the inbox to zero are the dream of every hospital administrator. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and it's just this system. And, and now we talk so much about doctor burnout. You know, the physician workforce is in threat because so many people are leaving because they're burnt out. And then we ask ourselves, wait, but you're told every day, make sure you clear your inbox, get back to all the patient messages, follow up on every single lab. You know, how are you supposed to do that and not get burnt out? And the administration says, here's a free cookie, you know, take some yoga classes. That right. it, self-care, it self-care. Exactly. And it, But where's the time for my self-care? Am I going to be in the bathtub with a candle, like answering my patient messages? I don't think so. I totally email in the bathtub. <laughs> it's horrible. Oh, my God. The electrical. Oh, I'm just thinking <laughs> the danger. I know. Oh, boy. But, you know, it's it's just a system that I think is set up to recruit people who have anxious perfectionistic tendencies because we're given praise for being the one that clears the inbox, gets back to the messages, answers the emails all the time. It's that positive reinforcement, but then truly does lead to burnout. And what is one of the two things that you experience with burnout? It's, well, of course, emotional exhaustion. I think that affects people more individually, but the depersonalization aspect of it, and that's so much of what I experience is that I don't care about what this person thinks. Like, 
I don't care about how they feel. And so much of that is because of burnout. And the burnout is because of the anxious perfectionistic tendencies. But I think that medicine as a whole needs to be restructured so we're not demanding people, you know, to have these perfectionistic tendencies to do well and get the positive feedback that they need to feel like they're doing a good job as a doctor. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? I do not know how to answer that question, but I actually think that's a good thing because I I think that that's where I got into the trap. Mm -hmm. You know, at the beginning, I'd say I see myself as successful. You know, what does it take to be successful? It takes doing X, Y, and Z. It takes working full-time at a large academic medical center, you know, doing some research, getting some grant funding, publishing X number of manuscripts a year, going up for a professor by the time you're age 40, whatever. You know, that's the path that has been described as success. And I ate all of that up. And when I did not meet milestones or markers – you know, and, and didn't feel like I actually wanted to pursue those things because they didn't make me happy, I felt like it was a failure. <laughs> and so I think it's very hard for someone like me who is very motivated to do whatever they set their mind to. It's hard to say, here's exactly what I want to do 10 years from now, mm-hmm. because then even if I'm five years in and saying, I'm not sure if this is really making me happy, some part of me will feel like a failure if I don't achieve what I set out to do. Right, right. So right now, what can I see myself doing? I do like part-time inpatient-only practice. I would always want to remain active clinically. I do a lot of work with gender equity in medicine. So hopefully in the future, people with personalities like mine won't be called abrasive or aggressive. (laughs) (laughs) But I would like to have more of a national presence kind of as a a leader in gender equity. And I'd like to take that beyond medicine to actually bring it to the population in general. So what can we do about the maternal health crisis in the United States? How can we achieve more equity for all women? So there's a lot of amazing things. But again, it's really hard to say, What are the steps I need to do to achieve that? And I'm okay with that for now because so much of my life has been, okay, what's the next step? What am I going to do? Okay, this step leads to that step leads to that step. And then you get to the top of the ladder and say, oh, I wish I hadn't climbed this ladder. I wish I climbed a different one. But I don't want to keep climbing and then find out only at the top that it's the wrong ladder. I want to be able to be mindful enough as I'm going along to say, hey, I've tried a couple steps up this ladder but that's not the right one. You know, maybe I need to go down and start at the bottom again, but let me start on a different ladder. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn, where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening.